What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? Who can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in this past week, Indonesia was hit by twin earthquakes and a tsunami. The death toll is at more than 1,500 people. Thousands more were injured, and more than 60,000 homes were destroyed. It's estimated that tens to hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced from their homes. About 600,000 children have been affected. And what happened in Indonesia is not an isolated circumstance. Torrential downpours caused massive flooding and mudslides in Japan this summer, causing about two million people to abandon their homes and to retreat for safety. Hurricane Florence caused bad flooding in the Carolinas. Wildfires have destroyed homes and forests in California and much acreage in Western Canada. When people's lives are affected by what we call natural disasters, they ask questions. It is hard for many to reconcile struggle and suffering with the existence of God. When faced with the death of loved ones and the loss of property, people ask, where was God? And why did he allow this to happen? Sometimes we as God's children also face trials and adversity that make us question God's ways in our lives. When there's a serious accident, a diagnosis of a terminal disease, or the loss of a loved one, we too ask questions. Is God truly in control of this world? Why does God allow bad things to happen to his children? Can we trust in a God who allows adversity to strike? We don't always understand God's ways. And yet we confess the providence of God. That's what Lord's Day 10 deals with. In it, we confess that God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. The point, beloved, is that 
God is the all-powerful king, seated on the throne in heaven above. He rules over all things. Do you believe that? Are you living from out of that comfort? I preach you the word of God under the following theme. God rules over all things for the benefit of his people. We'll consider who controls all things, why God permits evil, and how we are to live. This afternoon we read together from Esther 6. The story of Esther is a remarkable story. Esther was an orphan without father or mother. She was raised by Mordecai, who took her as his own daughter. Mordecai had been carried away into exile from Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar. When the Persians defeated the Babylonians, Mordecai entered the service of King Ahasuerus, who was ruler of the then-known world. Mordecai sat in the king's gate, a place where justice was dispensed by officials appointed by the king. The story of Esther begins with the king hosting a banquet, and then when his heart was merry with wine, commanding the eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before him in order to show the people and the princes her beauty. She refused, and as a result was deposed as king, as queen. The result was that beautiful young virgins were sought out for the king, that he might find a replacement for Queen Vashti. Esther also was taken into the king's palace to be a concubine, a member of his harem. Both Mordecai and Esther were Jews, part of God's covenant people. And so at the beginning of this book, we see two of God's children living as exiles in a foreign land. There had been an opportunity for God's people to return to Jerusalem, and a small remnant of forty to 50,000 went. Yet many more remained scattered among the foreign nations. They had to learn to live as God's children in the midst of a pagan society. That was not easy for them. Esther was taken into the king's harem because she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. She pleased the eunuch in charge of her and won his favor. During a year of beauty preparations, Esther was winning the favor of all who saw her. Besides her obvious beauty, she clearly had a winsome character. When it was Esther's turn to spend a night with the king, he loved Esther more than all the other women. She won his grace and favor, and he set the royal crown on her head, making her queen. It's sometime after this that the king also promoted Haman, the Agagite, and set his throne above all the other officials who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, according to the king's command. But Mordecai refused to do so. The other officials argued with him about this, but he would not bow down and pay homage to Haman. The reason he gave was that he was a Jew. We need to understand that Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites, 
who had attacked defenseless Israel when they came out of Egypt. God had commanded King Saul to wipe them out, but he had failed to do so. There was simply no way that Mordecai was going to bow down before this enemy of his people. Serving God and bowing down to an Amalekite were incompatible to him. This infuriated Haman. He wanted revenge. He sought to get it not just by destroying Mordecai, but all the Jews living throughout the kingdom of Ahasuerus. Haman went to the king and had a decree passed with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate Jews, young and old, men and women, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, and to plunder all their goods. It should be clear. Haman was an instrument of Satan. His enmity was against the seed of the woman. Mordecai and the Jews throughout the kingdom responded with mourning, fasting, weeping, and putting on sackcloth and ashes. We need to understand that laws passed by the Medes and Persians were irrevocable. Thus, God's people were under threat of being exterminated from the face of the earth. Mordecai passes on the news of what happened to Esther with a command to go into the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Now, this was not something that was easy for Esther to do. The law stated that if any man or woman went to the king in the inner court without being summoned, they were to be put to death unless the king extended the royal scepter to him or her. Mordecai tells Esther she still needs to go, for her life was under threat as well. He said, for if you keep silence at a time like this, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther went into the king's inner court and found favor in his sight. He offered to give her whatever she requested, even up to half of his kingdom. She asked for the king and Haman to attend a feast she had prepared for them. They came and the king again asked Esther about what was on her mind, promising to give it to her. She requested that the king and Haman return to another feast with her the next day and that then she would speak to the king about her request. That day, Haman went out, joyful and glad of heart. But when he saw Mordecai in the king's gate and noted his continued unwillingness to bow before him, he was filled with wrath. When he went home, he bragged to his wife and friends about his great riches, about the number of his sons, the promotions with which the king had honored him, and his attendance at Esther's banquet. Yet all of this meant nothing to him as long as Mordecai sat in that king's gate. His wife and friends advised him to have gallows built and to request the king to allow him to hang Mordecai on them. That brings us to our reading from Esther 6. A number of remarkable things happen in this chapter. It's the turning point in the book of Esther. 
Till now, we've seen God's people threatened with utter destruction. Esther has plans to approach the king. But what she wants from him is legally impossible. The king would not be able to undo an edict passed into law by the Medes and Persians. Such an edict could not be broken. For Esther request that this be done would be gross insubordination. And so the way needs to be prepared for Esther to approach the king. Neither Mordecai nor Esther have any way of doing this. But in Esther 6, we see a number of coincidences occur. Some explainers suggest that Esther ran into a streak of really good luck. It just so happened that on that night, the king could not sleep. He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds and to have it read to him. And on this occasion, they happened to read about how Mordecai had reported an assassination plot against the king, how he had saved his life. The king asked what honor and distinction had been bestowed to Mordecai for this. The king's young men told him nothing had been done for Mordecai. The king asked who was in the court. And as it happened, Haman had just entered the court to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged. The king asked Haman what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman thought that the king wanted to honor him, so he suggested that the man be dressed in royal robes, seated on the king's horse, and led through the square of the city by a prominent official, saying, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then we see the tables turned on Haman. The king told him to do exactly as he suggested to Mordecai the Jew, who sat at the king's gate. Proud Haman is greatly humbled, and the persecuted Mordecai is highly exalted. Now, beloved, do you think that the events of our text just happened? That they were coincidences or extremely good luck? That the king could not sleep? That the history about Mordecai was read? That Haman happened to enter the court at exactly that moment in time? When Haman went home and complained about having to honor Mordecai, his wife and advisors told him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. These people did not believe in God. They did not know why the plan against Mordecai would fail. They went by signs and omens. But even they knew that Haman's downfall had begun. We know why all the so-called coincidences in our text happened. Our God was ruling over all things by his providential hand. His providence, 
His almighty and ever-present power cause all things to go as they do, as they should, because He wants it so. You see, beloved, Haman had instigated an attack against God's covenant people. If successful, they would be wiped off the face of the earth. Then God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would fail. There would be no possibility of the Messiah coming from David's line. So does the book of Esther tell us this? No, not directly. It is striking that the book of Esther never mentions God, the law, the covenant, the temple, or any of the other institutions of Israel's faith. Often when referring to God's providence, the Bible speaks of God using his almighty hand to benefit his people. But that doesn't happen in Esther either. Yet God's providential care of his people is the major theme of the book of Esther. God leads and directs events with impeccable timing in order to accomplish his purposes. I spoke earlier of how the way needed to be prepared for Esther to approach the king with a request to spare her people, the Jews. What she would be asking the king to do was to change the law of the Medes and Persians, which legally speaking could not be broken. In Esther 7, Esther presents her request to King Ahasuerus. She said, if I had found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleased the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. The king asked who had dared to do such a thing. Then Esther pointed at Haman. And then something else providentially happens. The king arose in his wrath and he went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed behind to beg for his life. When the king returned, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. The king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? One of his officials told the king about the gallows Haman had built to hang Mordecai on. The king instructed that Haman be hanged on the gallows he had built. Later, Esther again went to the king to plead for him to avert Haman's evil plan against the Jews. While the king could not annul the previous law, he passed another one. In it, he allowed the Jews in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, kill, and to annihilate any armed force or any people or province that might attack them. The result was that on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. In the generations that followed, the Jews celebrated God's providential care over them with the Purim Feast. This mighty working of God to turn bad to good 
and sorrow to joy did not just happen in the life of Esther and of God's people in the Persian Empire. Beloved, this happens repeatedly in Scripture. Think of the story of Joseph, cruelly sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt and wrongfully imprisoned by his master Potiphar. For many years, he did not understand God's plan for his life. Yet later, Joseph could confess God's providential hand at work, bringing him to Egypt to repair a place for God's people during years of famine. Think, beloved, of the manner in which God allowed the Jewish leaders to crucify his dearly loved son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 2, verse 23, Peter makes it clear that Jesus was delivered into the hands of lawless men by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God used their wicked act of crucifying the Lord of glory to bring salvation for his people. Or think of the severe persecutions that came upon the early church in Jerusalem. They were forced to flee for their lives. Acts 8 verse 4 says, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And so God planted his church, not just in Jerusalem, but also in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He used difficult and trying circumstances, what we would call great adversity, for the benefit of his people. The same happens in our lives. Today, Jesus Christ is seated on the throne at God's right hand. God has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. And as king of the church, Christ rules over all things for our benefit. Things don't just happen in our lives. Both the good times and the struggles we experience come to us from God's fatherly hand. In Romans 8 verse 28, Paul makes a profound statement. He says, And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Beloved, do you believe that? I think in general we would agree that God rules over all things for the benefit of his people. Yet often we still struggle with the problem of evil. So in our second point, we'll examine why God permits evil. The question is often asked, why doesn't God do something about all the suffering that's in the world? It's asked in times of war, when believers and unbelievers are wounded and killed. It's asked when Accident or illness bring injury or death to helpless people. It's asked when the unrighteous seem to prosper, while faithful people endure hardships and abuse. 
It's asked when upheavals of nature like earthquakes, cyclones, tornadoes and the like bring death and destruction. Man, created in the image of God, endures untold suffering for many causes. Do you know, beloved, why we experience so many hardships and so much sorrow in this life? In paradise, our first parents lived in perfect harmony with God, with each other, and with all of creation. But that peace, that wholeness, was broken. The basic reason for this is that we disobeyed God. We've fallen into sin. With the fall into sin, God cursed mankind, and he cursed creation. Ever since, we've been dealing with the terrible consequences of our disobedience. Eve would experience pain in childbirth. The ground was cursed because of Adam, bringing forth thorns and thistles. Adam would have to work in the sweat of his brow until death came to return him to dust. God's condemnation was poured out on mankind because of sin. Now it's true that Jesus Christ came to deliver us from the wrath of God. He bore our curse through his painful death on the cross. In Christ, Almighty God has become our Father. The result is that we are God's children, loved, precious in his sight. God will not punish us for a second time for sins once placed on Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. God does not deal with us as we deserve, according to the fall into sin. But still, beloved, there are consequences from the fall into sin. We live in a sin-stained world. We're confronted by all the effects of the fall. Yet that's not a completely satisfactory answer for why God still permits evil today. If God wanted to, he could end all the suffering in this world in a moment. What we need to understand, beloved, is that God often uses struggle and suffering for the benefit of his people. Hebrews 12 speaks about how God disciplines the one he loves how he chastises every son whom he receives. God will often allow his children to undergo hardships and troubles and sorrows, not with the purpose of hurting us or causing us pain, but to grow us, to make us mature in the faith, to refine us so that more and more we may image him in our lives to help us trust in his unfailing love, even when at times life crashes all around us. We usually do not see that at times when we go through adversity. But years later, we understand how God used illness, loss, sorrow, or trouble to form and shape us, our perspectives, and our priorities. Many Christians who have gone through deep struggles can speak of how God used these hardships 
to make them less critical and more caring toward others going through hard times. Suffering helps us focus our attention on God. In the busyness of life, with so many demands on our time, we can so easily shove God off and forget about Him. There's times when we neglect God and His service, when we're too busy to pray before we go to work or to read the Bible around the dinner table. But hardships and troubles help focus our attention. They make us ask, where is God? Why is he allowing these troubles in my life? Adversity will often make unbelievers reject God, yet it draws God's children closer to him. We learn to look to him for help in times of need. We engage more fervently in prayer, laying our needs before the throne of grace. We yearn more eagerly for Christ's return, when all the troubles of this life will come to an end, and when God will take us to himself into eternal joy and glory. It's easy to live apart from God when all is going well in your life. Pain, hardship, struggles, and grief often draw us back to God. This brings us to our final point, how we are to live our lives. So far we've learned that God rules over all things for the benefit of his people. He governs all of life by his providential hand, leading and directing our lives according to his eternal plan. God allows us to experience many blessings in life, but at times he also causes us to face various struggles and sorrows. If you understand all this, how do you react to it? Are you willing to submit your life into the care and keeping of your Father in heaven? To live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, even when he brings trouble and sorrow, into your life? Our catechism asks, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? It answers, we can be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity. Now we understand why, should, why we should be thankful in times of prosperity. God is the source of every good gift we receive. He's truly worthy of our praise and thanksgiving. This doesn't mean that we always recognize God's goodness and grace, and that we give thanks for them. Often, that's a learning process. At times, we need to struggle and suffer in order to appreciate God's good gifts. And what, beloved, is it that gives us patience in hard times? We know that God is fully in control, that he's working out all things in our life for our ultimate benefit, 
Please understand, we don't always understand how and why God is working. God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. We may face incredible struggles coming to terms with God's plan for our lives. But ultimately, we learn to trust in him and to submit our lives to his care and keeping. Do you know why? Our catechism explains. It says that we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. God's love is the basis for our confidence in him. In Ephesians 3, Paul speaks about how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is. Do you know what sets his love apart? He loves us unconditionally. In Romans 5, Paul explains that Christ died for the ungodly. He made the ultimate sacrifice by offering his life for us while we were his enemies. Our Father in heaven has promised redemption and life to all who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Does that mean that we always understand his plan for our lives? No, we don't. Does it mean that we never struggle surrendering ourselves to God's will for our life? Of course not. And yet, with Paul, we may confess that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We can say, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God's providential care over us gives us great comfort, for it assures us he will complete his salvation work in our lives. Amen.